listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our scripture reading today is Matthew 1, 1 through 5b. On account of the genealogy of Jesus Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nishon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel, the God who cares for the widow and welcomes the foreigner. I have been young and now I am old. And I have lived to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I have known sorrow, and I have experienced comfort under the wings of the God of Israel. I was young when misfortune, a famine in the city of Bethlehem, brought Naomi's family from the land of Judah into Moab, my country. And it was sorrow, sorrow upon sorrow, that brought me back with Naomi to Bethlehem. Death, first the death of Naomi's husband, and then the deaths of her two sons who had married my friend Orpah and me. When Naomi determined to return to Bethlehem, I promised never to leave her, even though she tried to dissuade me. I made a vow that her God would be my God, her people, my people, and that where she was buried, I too would be buried. How grieved we were as we came into the city when Naomi's friends greeted us happy to see that their friend had returned. Naomi, believing that the Lord had turned against her, told them to no longer call her Naomi, which means pleasant, but to call her Mara, which means bitter. Not long after our arrival, I discovered how sorrow can be turned to joy and emptiness to fullness. Following the reapers in the barley fields to collect their scraps so we could have food, I began to learn the kind provisions of the Lord He had brought me into the fields of Boaz, where I discovered not only a provision of food, but a blessing from this good man, declaring that I would be rewarded for my care for Naomi by the God of Israel. Eventually, in my marriage to Boaz and the birth of our son Obed, Naomi too found joy in place of bitterness as she held her grandson for the first time. I may never see the fulfillment of the blessing pronounced by the women of Bethlehem on my son, that his name would be renowned in Israel, but I know that the God of Israel rewards those who take refuge in him. Let's hear it for our Ruth. Thank you, Julie. That was great. So good morning, everybody. Happy Advent. We are exactly halfway through the month of December, and Christmas is only 10 days away. Does anyone else feel the pressure yet? Yeah, yeah. 
I kind of miss when uh, we just had one kid and she was too young to know what was going on. Like Christmas was super easy then, um, but now we've got two, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and uh, they know exactly what's up. So the, the pressure is on, but um, thank God for grandparents who send gifts, am I right? <laughs> Our Advent series for this year is called Dangerous Women, with the word dangerous in scare quotes. Um, we're looking at the four women who are mentioned in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Four women who, historically speaking, have not always been viewed in the best light, especially by the church. Um, These women have often been written off as um, immoral, damaged goods, even dangerous. But as we've been discovering so far in this series, there's a lot more to their stories than all of that. I just got to say, too, the last two weeks have been pretty wild. Um, If you haven't been here and worship with us, you missed some stuff. Um, How do you put this delicately? There's a lot of sex in these stories, basically. It's a lot of of R-rated material we've been working through the last few weeks. Um, We talked about prostitution with both Tamar and Rahab. Um, Last week, we talked about genocide and divinely sanctioned violence in the Old Testament. Some good Christmas-themed stuff. Um, If you've been here for the last two weeks, you're probably thinking right about now, oh great, how is Dan going to ruin the book of Ruth for me? Anybody? Anybody feeling that right now? Um, I will ease those fears though. Um, Ruth is a very different character from Tamar and Rahab. Um, She's not a prostitute. She doesn't pretend to be a prostitute like in Tamar's case. There's definitely some sexual tension going on between Ruth and Boaz in this book. Uh, We'll get into that a little bit later. But Ruth is probably the exception in this series. She's the one character out of these four women who are, who's remembered pretty positively by the church, has a pretty wholesome character. Uh, Ruth's story is found in our Bibles in the book of Ruth's, and uh, I gotta say, I really wanna preach through Ruth someday. This is such a good story, and it's a really short book, too. You can read the entire book of Ruth in like 15, 20 minutes. It's one of the shortest books in the Bible. Um, as I've been working on this sermon this week, I've really had to fight the urge to just come up here and read the book of Ruth to you. It's that good. But as familiar as Ruth's story might be to some of us, there's a lot going on in this book. There's a lot of subtext that is lost even on like seasoned Christian folks. At its core, Ruth's story is a story about suffering. I want to just read the opening paragraph of this book to you. Uh, Most of the names you're going to hear aren't really all that important, uh, so don't get bogged down by that, but pay attention to how much suffering unfolds in just the first five verses of Ruth. It's going to be on the screen. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malone and Chilion. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. When they had lived there about ten years, both Malone and Chilion also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. In just five verses, we have a famine. 
we have geographical displacement. Naomi and her family become refugees fleeing starvation. Then Naomi's husband dies. Then both of her sons die. And Naomi and her two daughters-in-law are left as widows, which we saw a couple weeks ago with Tamar's story was basically a death sentence in the ancient world. That's a whole lot of suffering in the opening paragraph of this story. Like that, that is a heavy, heavy way to start a story. And for Ruth, the story is even darker. After her sons die, Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem. Um, her daughter-in-law, Orpah, stays behind in Moab, but Ruth clings to Naomi. Even though Naomi begs her to just return to her father's house, Ruth insists on coming with her to Bethlehem. And that's a really big deal because Ruth is a Moabite. Now, that means, like, nothing to us, right? Yeah, like, we wouldn't know a Moabite from an Ammonite or any of the other ites we find in our Bibles. But the people of Israel would have known what a Moabite was because Moab, Ruth's country, was one of the sworn enemies of the Israelites. Uh, here's Moab on a map. I should have it up here. It's that pink region right there, um, right across the Dead Sea from like southern Israel, what would later be called the Kingdom of Judah. About a century or two before the time of Ruth, when, when the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness with Moses, the, the Exodus story, the Israelites had a few run-ins with the Moabites, and it didn't go very well. The Moabites were opposed to Israel's presence in the land. They didn't think they belonged there. And the people of Moab were actually really afraid of Israel. They had seen them conquer um, a few neighboring tribes and villages. The Moabites even believed that God was on Israel's side and that that was really bad news for them. Um, in the book of Numbers, which is the fourth book of the Bible, a book we don't really talk about that much because half the book is literally a list of numbers, not very stimulating reading. But in the book of Numbers, there's this story where the king of Moab tries to turn God against the Israelites. He hires this prophet named Balaam to curse the Israelites. Ba Balaam's like a vigilante prophet. He's basically a prophet for hire. If you want to turn the gods against somebody, you'd pay Balaam a bunch of money, and he would curse them for you. He also had a talking donkey, because the book of Numbers is really weird. <laughs> um, but so this vigilante prophet with a talking donkey, he tries to curse the Israelites, but every time he opens his mouth to curse the Israelites, God speaks through him instead, and he ends up cursing the Moabites, which, like, don't you hate it when that happens? So embarrassing. And so, like, in this last-ditch effort to turn God against Israel, the king of Moab, he hatches this plan. He gathers all the Moabite women, and he arms them with idols, and he marches them into the Israelite camp. It's basically like an army of prostitutes. That's the idea in the book of Numbers of what's happening here. And the Israelite men, this is in the Bible, they are so taken with these Moabite women that they just start having sex with them right there in the camp and, and worshiping to their gods. It's a really weird story. But this little episode, it really cements the animosity between Israel and Moab forever. Um, later in the Bible, as a result of all this, the Israelites are banned from marrying Moabites forever. There's a lot of, like, other tribes and people that Israel's not supposed to marry for, like, three generations or five generations. Moab, it's forever. You can never marry the Moabites. 
Moabites um, are even banned from the assembly of Israel, like the, the place outside of the tabernacle or the temple where like Gentiles, non-Jews could come and worship Israel's God. Moabites aren't even welcomed there. So Naomi's sons are in Israel, and they marry Moabite women. Or sorry, they're from Israel, and they marry Moabite women because there probably weren't many other options in Moab. And then when they die and Naomi comes back to Bethlehem, Ruth the Moabite goes with her. Can you imagine all the history, all the bad blood, the resentment that would have gone with Ruth, that would have greeted Ruth in Israel? Oh, we know about you Moabite women. Yeah, we know about you with your your idols and your good looks and your low moral standards. We actually see this play out in the text. It's just beneath the surface. But throughout the book of Ruth, whenever Ruth is talked about by another character, they always call her Ruth the Moabite every single time. Not Ruth. Ruth the Moabite. Uh, When Boaz sees Ruth collecting the scraps of barley in his field, he asks someone who this woman is, and they say, that's Ruth the Moabite, who Naomi brought back from Moab. You know Ruth. The Moabite from Moab? Did we mention she's a Moabite? That's what's going on throughout this entire book. This shame and reputation of being a Moabite uh, woman just hovers over Ruth in this story. When uh, people start to see how loyal Ruth is, what a good person she is, how she's loyal to Naomi, they're very impressed, like a little too impressed. They start praising Ruth. Oh my goodness, what a kind Moabite you found. What a loyal Moabite this is. It's sort of like today when, like, certain white people will compliment a person of color, but they say something like, oh, he's so well-spoken. You know what I'm talking about? Like that, that, like, polite racism? That's what's happening to Ruth in this book. Turns out, though, that Boaz... The man who spots Ruth picking up the scraps in his field, he's a relative of Naomi's dead husband. And if you remember Tamar's story from a few weeks ago, the Israelites had this law called Levite marriage where if a man died without an heir, his closest male relative, usually a brother, was responsible for making sure the widow was taken care of. The dead man's brother would usually marry the widow, provide for her, um, have a child, an heir for his dead brother, and make sure that the widow was protected. And Boaz is a male relative. So one night, Ruth bathes herself, probably her one bath of the year. She puts on expensive perfume, and she goes to Boaz when he's asleep on the threshing floor. Now this is totally lost on us, But in these ancient cultures, a lot of the gods and goddesses people believed in were fertility gods. Gods over both human fertility, like sex, and fertility of the earth. So there is a strong connection between the harvest and sexuality. So the threshing floor, the place where the grain would be crushed for the harvest, that's where the kids went back in the day to... Conceive, we'll see. We'll say conceive. 
And that's where Ruth goes to meet Boaz in the middle of the night. He's asleep on the threshing floor. She curls up right at his feet. This is a super dangerous play. Um, Here's this pagan woman from an enemy culture um, whose people are banned from Israel forever. And she presents herself to this powerful, wealthy, God-fearing Israelite man on the threshing floor the middle of the night. I mean, Ruth could be killed. She could be assaulted or raped. She could be stoned to death. If this does not go well, it will end very badly for her. She's sticking her neck out in what is basically like an ancient marriage proposal. Not the kind of thing women in this patriarchal society were really known to do. So Boaz is startled awake by this woman at his feet, and he says, who are you? And then in what is probably the climax of the book of Ruth, She responds, I am Ruth. Not I am Ruth the Moabite, or I am Ruth, you know, from Moab, but just I am Ruth. This is an invitation not just to marriage, but for Boaz to see her, like to really see her. I am Ruth is like, do you see me? Will you honor me? Will you do your duty for me and ensure that I'm protected? Or when you look at me, do you just see a Moabite? Someone who doesn't belong. And long story short, Boaz does see Ruth, and he marries her. And they have a son named Obed, who is the father of Jesse, the father of David, who goes on to become one of the greatest kings in Israel's history and the ancestor of Jesus. Not bad for a Moabite widow from Moab. Reading back through this book uh, this last week, I have no idea how Ruth knows what she knows. Like, I don't know why Ruth returns to Israel with Naomi when every shred of common sense had to tell her it was a bad idea. I don't know why Ruth chooses to put her faith in the God of Israel, the God of a people who say that she and her people don't belong. I don't know why she does that. I don't know if it was like Naomi's influence, or maybe it was her late son's. I have no idea, and the Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't spell out Ruth's motivations. But I sure am glad she went back with Naomi. Because if she hadn't, we wouldn't have King David, and we wouldn't have Jesus. The story of Ruth is a story of faith overcoming boundaries. Centuries-old divisions come crashing down because one outsider puts her faith in God. That's what we see throughout the story of Jesus. Jesus is all about tearing down boundaries, eating with sinners, touching lepers, praising the faith of Samaritans and Roman centurions, restoring outsiders to community, um, ultimately tearing down the dividing line between God and humanity. We draw our dividing lines a little bit differently today than they did back then. Back then it was all about what tribe you were in or who your father was. There's still a bit of that today, 
But we have a lot of new ways to divide ourselves as well. What country you belong to and your status there. What class you belong to. What school you went to or if you even went to school. The color of your skin. What political party you vote for. Where you get your news. What gender you identify with or are attracted to. There's a lot of ways we've found to divide and determine who's in and who's out. A lot of us have been told, just like Ruth, that if you don't fit in the right category, then Jesus isn't for you. But I think the takeaway of the story of Ruth is that faith overcomes all boundaries. The only box you need to, you need to check to belong at this church is have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you opened your heart to receive the free gift of salvation that is yours in Christ and committed to following him as your Lord? That's it. That's our one rule for membership. And you have to get baptized because we're Baptists. But the key thing that matters is did you put your faith in Jesus? People talk about faith in a lot of different ways. Uh, faith can mean loyalty. It can mean trust, belief, obedience. But sometimes I think faith really boils down to believing what God declares about you, even when every voice in your life is screaming the opposite. Believing that you are loved when all you've received from others is hate. Believing that you are wanted when everyone else turns their back on you. Responding to Christ's call to follow him even when others say that you don't belong. If that's you, if you've ever been told that you don't belong here, I want to tell you today that this church is for you. I'm here to tell you that you are welcome here. That other stuff is a lie. And I want to invite you to enter into the life of faith to believe what God declares about you and forget the rest. Every week we have these yellow cards. And on the back there's all these different boxes. One of them is, um, I'd like to start a relationship with Jesus. And one is, I want to talk to a pastor. And here's my promise. If I get one of these cards with your name on it, you are going to hear from me. And I will meet with you in whatever venue you are comfortable. We can have coffee, we can have lunch, we can talk on the phone, whatever is best for you. And I will listen to your story, I'll pray with you, and I will do everything in my power to help you see how loved you are by God. Let's pray. God, thank you for the story of Ruth. Thank you for the inexplicable faith of this incredibly courageous outsider. Thank you for tearing down the barriers and dividing lines that we've erected. And for inviting every single one of us, Lord, to put our faith and our trust in you. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.